Welcome, everyone. So good to have all of you at all our churches, Bluntstown, Shipley, and Mariana. We are glad you're with us today because we are in week three of our yearly season of generosity that we call four. And I just want to say thank you for not just leaning in during this season of being four, but doing that 365 days a year because you are a church that is four. We were able to send a team uh, down this past week to South Florida to help some people who are impacted by their Hurricane Ian. Uh, we had a team that was partnering up with Convoy of Hope. We had a team that was partnering up doing some cleanup stuff with Midnight Disaster Service. You also were able to send over 100 buckets of the cleaning kits that you put together as a church uh, down with them as well. So I just want to say thank you so much for leaning into this consistently because that's really what or why we focus on the four during the season to remind us that this is what we're to live out 365 days a year. In fact, here's one of the teams uh, that was with the Convoy of Hope. We had another team, as I said, that was doing cleanup with Mennonite Disaster Service. So thank you for being a church that is for. Now, part of the reason that we lean in and do this intense focus of being for is because of something that we just absolutely believe is a core, um, it's a foundation of who we are as a church, and that is this, that God is love. Not, not that just love is one of the attributes of God, but it is the essence of who God is. Every other attribute flows out of his love. So God is holy because he's love. God is just because he's love. God is righteous because he is love. So God is love. And because that is true, God loves everybody and everybody matters to God. And because everybody matters to God, they should matter to those of us who love and follow Jesus as our savior, our leader, and our king. Matter of fact, uh, we said this throughout this whole series, it is impossible for us to love God and not love the people that God loves. It's just impossible to say, I love God, as we're going to see today from 1 John, to say, I love God, but I don't like these people. So every year about this time, we collectively come together as a group of churches and say, hey, let's just get better at loving people together. And while we don't always get it right being for other people all the time, we absolutely, this is the kind of movement, this is the kind of church that we're trying to create, and it's the kind of people that we are trying to become, a group of people who love as Jesus loved. And here's what we said for years, the only way to get better at this is to practice together giving, serving, and loving. So each year we take one or two or three weeks and, and we remind ourselves and we practice together being for others in these three areas, in the area of give and serve and love. Now, last week we focused on being generous. And we ask all of you at all of our churches to come together in giving generously to help nonprofits in our community so that they could go further faster to meet the needs in our community that nobody else is meeting. And if you haven't participated yet, I really hope you'll jump in because we give every penny away that you give to our four fund. And on November the 20th, that is our evening of vision for this fall season, uh, we're going to all come together. All of our campuses are going to come together on our Mariana campus, and we're going to celebrate 
celebrate the impact that you've made for being for others. And we don't want you to miss out on that. So go ahead and if you haven't given yet, you can go to our app or our website and you can give to the four fund there. So thank you for giving generously. Now today, we're gonna focus on being generous through acts of service and acts of love. We're gonna talk about doing good to others. So to get us started in this conversation, I just really wanna make sure that we're clear about what we mean when we say that we are called to do good as a church. Because whenever you talk about the church, it's really easy to get confused about what the church is. So I wanna define what we mean when we talk about the church. So here's our definition. A church is a community of people changed by the resurrection of Jesus and living by the command of Jesus. So a church is a group of people, a community of people changed by the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason we say that, because the church would have never existed apart from the resurrection. I mean, think about this. When Jesus died, all hope in Jesus died. But then three days later, whenever Jesus walked out of that tomb under his own power and people saw him with their eyes and they touched him with their hands, suddenly they believed that Jesus was the leader, the king, the Messiah, that they had been looking for. And these people, they took everything that Jesus said seriously. They took it to heart. Because whenever a man predicts his own death and his resurrection, and then he pulls that off, you pay attention to what he says, right? You pay attention to everything he says. And one of the things that was core to what he said that they took seriously was the one command that Jesus gave them right before his arrest and his crucifixion. Think about this. On the night before Jesus' arrest, Jesus' disciples, they're having this Passover meal, which was the tradition of the Jewish people. And during this meal, Jesus says one of the most fascinating and possibly the most offensive thing imaginable to this group of Jewish guys. That evening during that meal, Jesus took the bread and he took the cup. And he said, from now on, Whenever you gather to take the Passover meal, it is no longer going to be a celebration of something that happened hundreds of years ago in Egypt. He says, you're going to be celebrating what I'm about to do in a couple hours for you and for all of mankind. In fact, he said, this cup and this bread they're about, that you're about to partake of, it's going to become a symbol of a brand new covenant in my blood because of what I'm about to do. And then he would go on to say, and this brand new covenant is going to be fueled by a new command, literally a new single governing ethic that is going to shift the way that we measure our relationship with God, not not our relationship based on God, based on 10 commands or a list of commands or 614 commands from the Old Testament, just one command that took on an entirely new meaning after the resurrection of Jesus. So on the night of Jesus' arrest, he looks at the disciples and this is what he says to them. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And then a few hours later, they watch Jesus die on the cross and they realize this is love at another level. This is love without any kind of limits. This is love that changes everything. 
Because in this command, Jesus, what he does is he completely redefines what it means to follow him. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So these followers of Jesus, they spent the rest of their lives trying to love one another the way that Jesus has loved us. In fact, their community, their relationship, their church, it was built with one another on unconditional love and sacrificial love. In fact, nothing mattered more to them because they realized that the most authentic way to love God is to love the people like Jesus loved us. So being for others was the kind of community that these early followers of Jesus created, and it absolutely changed the world. Now, when you hear all of that, you go, well, that just sounds so great, because it did change the world. I mean, it affected our world even today, but what does all that mean for us, and how did they get there, and how did they achieve that? And the other question becomes, and is it possible for our church to be a community of people that are for each other because of the way that we love each other? And I am convinced the answer is absolutely yes. And I'm convinced because of something that the Apostle John wrote toward the end of his life. And if you got your Bibles, I encourage you to go with me to 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 2. Because see, when John was older... Because the Romans and the Jewish Christian leaders, they could not spread, stop the spread of Christianity. What they decided to do is, we're going to exile John to this island, this island called Patmos. And John, as he was exiled, he began to write letters to churches, to Christians in his century. And those letters are so relevant still to us today. And what he says in the part of the letter that we're going to be looking at today, it is the cornerstone of of why being for others should be part of our everyday life. He's going to help us understand that God's love is the cornerstone, but love can only be experienced as we live out and we flesh it out through the empowering grace of God's atoning sacrifice and his forgiveness in our lives. So I want you to listen to what John says as he explains to these followers of Jesus what this new movement, the church, based upon this new command to love one another as Jesus loved us. He says, here's what you as a church, here's what you should know, and here's what it should look like. Here's what he says beginning in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, referring to the fact that he is our atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, here's the thing. When you read what John just said here, and he talks about an advocate with the Father, and that we have this atoning sacrifice for our sins, I mean, that could just be like really confusing. I mean, it could be like random even, until you begin to understand that what he's addressing in verse 1 and 2 is a major tension in the church at that time in the first century. And the tension was this. How do I measure my relationship with God? Is it by keeping the Old Testament law or is it based on a relationship with Jesus because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross and made available to me through his love and his grace? 
literally, does everybody have to become a Jew and keep all the Old Testament laws to be in a relationship with God? Or can I be in a relationship with God through grace? So there was a lot of tension in the early church about this issue. And John comes along and he says, let me be very clear. He says, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, meaning, he says, I just want to be clear, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, not just for those who are part of the nation of Israel, he says, but Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, meaning everybody in the world. And he says, so basically, everybody comes to God on the same terms. Everybody is on equal playing field. And then he continues in verse 3. Notice what he says. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Literally, we know that we're in a relationship with God if we keep his commands. So what does that mean? Well, John is trying to help them understand, hey, your relationship with God, it is restored when you believe that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for your sins, and by his grace, you receive the gift of forgiveness. But he says, but how you know you're in fellowship with God is by whether or not you keep Jesus' commands. Now, when you first look at this statement, we know that we're in fellowship with him if we keep his commands. At first glance, that could sound like, well, you're just adding another rule. But before you go there, notice how John unpacks this in verse 4. He says it this way. He says, whoever says, I know him, literally I'm in a relationship with him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. And then he takes it to a whole nother level. He says, but if anyone obeys his word, love for, the God, love for God is truly made complete, mature, or perfect in them. In other words, he comes along and he says, hey, if you say you're following Jesus, but you're not doing what Jesus commanded, John says, you're not only lying to yourself, but you are lying to the rest of the world. Well, what did Jesus command? Well, Jesus commanded us that we're to love one another as Christ loved us. And that is impossible without the empowering grace of God in our lives. And so John comes along and he reminds us, hey, here's what this looks like. Here's what this feels like in the last part of verse 5. Notice it. He says, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And this word must is not an obligation kind of thing. It's an empowering thing. He's saying that you become so filled with the power and the grace of God that it's what you must do. You go, I can't do anything less than this because of what God has done for me, because his grace in my life. He says, I must do this. This is how I must live. So John is saying, if you want to know what the command that Jesus looked like lived out, he he says, then just look at how Jesus lived. So you love God by loving people like Jesus loved us. And so John says, that's how you know you have fellowship with God. When his empowering grace is saying, hey, this is what God did for you. Now there's just a sense of motivation and empowerment. I must do this for others. You must live as Jesus did. And then he continues in verse seven. He says, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, 
but in Oldham. We'll come back and unpack what that means in just a moment. Which you have seen, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. So what does this old, this new old command mean? Well, when he says, I'm not writing you a new command, he's literally saying, um, it's a command that you had from the beginning, not the beginning of time, but the beginning of Jesus' teaching and ministry. So you've had this command to love one another for now for about 30 or 40 years. And then he continues. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, yet I'm writing to you a new command. You say, well, I thought he just said, well, hang on just a second. We'll unpack that. He says, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, in Jesus, and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Now, when John says here, I'm writing a new command to you, it's his way of saying, I am trying to present this command that you already know that Jesus told you to love one another as I loved you. He says, I'm trying to present it in a new way so that you understand the importance of it, the urgency of it, and you begin to live it out. It's a new command that you've heard since you started following Jesus. So he's saying this new command to love, it isn't just a belief thing. It's something that the empowering grace of God causes to well up in you and flow out of you. So it's a do thing. It's something that through your relationship with Jesus, experiencing his love and grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness in your life, that then I must live this out. And John says, hey, this command is so clear that you know if you're loving or not. There's no loophole. There's no get around. He's saying Jesus is the standard by which you can tell if you're loving other people well. You know it when you see it and you know it when you don't. Now notice what he says in verse nine. So anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Now, this verse is where most of us give ourselves an out to living out Jesus' command to love as he loved us. This is where we give ourselves an out to forgive quickly and completely. And here's how we do it. If I were to ask you today, if you hated someone, very few of you at any of our churches would raise your hand and go, yeah, I hate someone. I mean, very few of us would say that. But here's what I know. Every one of us, we know what it feels like to be hated, don't we? I mean, if we were all honest, we know. We know what it's like to feel hated. But the reality is, the exact things that made us feel hated, we've all done those things to someone else, haven't we? And truthfully, some of you, you're doing those things to some people right now. Now you would say, oh, I don't hate them, but you're still treating them with the emotion that you felt, the actions, the attitude that you felt when you felt hated. So I don't want you to miss John's point because while most of us would never say, yeah, I don't hate my brother or sister, you wouldn't say that you have hate for someone. How we think of hate or how we compartmentalize hate is not the true meaning of this word hate in the context as John is expressing it. A better way of reading this would be anyone who claims to be in the light, 
but dismisses or rejects or pushes to the periphery or holds a grudge or stays embittered or holds on to anger or who doesn't let go of past hurt or mistreats someone, that person is still in the darkness. And so you know what John is saying to every one of us? He says, if you're holding on to unhealthy emotions, if you're holding on to unresolved attitudes and unhealthy thoughts toward a person, he says, it doesn't matter how much you pray, it doesn't matter how many sermons that you hear, it doesn't matter how many small group Bible studies that you go to, it doesn't matter how much worship music you listen to during the week, it doesn't matter how much Bible knowledge you have, it doesn't matter how much people say, oh wow, you, you're such a spiritual person, I wish I was as spiritual as you. He's saying, if there are individuals, or if there are people, or if there is a group of people that you can't forgive, that you're angry with, that you consider unimportant, that you push to the side, or that you even carry this soft grudge toward, or this embittered spirit against, and maybe... Maybe they ask you, hey, is everything okay? What's, what's wrong? You feel like there's something. You go, oh, we're okay, we're okay. But you tell yourself because you have conversations in your head and you hold on to unhealthy emotions in your head with them and you, and you tell yourself and sometimes you even tell other people that things are not okay. John says, if you're living your life in such a way where you are somehow permitting yourself to mistreat anyone in any way, you have any unresolved issues with, carry any kind of grudge, any kind of bad attitude toward, he says, you are still in the dark. And then John drives this home even deeper in verse 10 and 11. Notice what he says. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But then he goes back to this reminder. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness, and here's the devastating part about that, and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. I mean, what John is saying here, it is so powerful. John is saying, when you don't treat other people well, when you mistreat people in any way, either through an action or a reaction or an attitude, what he says it does, it leaves you in a place where you are spiritually stumbling around in the darkness. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. This is why some of you can't seem to find your way in life. It's why some of you, you're always wondering if you are in the place where God wants you to be. It's why some of you can never find peace and contentment with where you're at in life. You're always looking for that next circumstance, that next relationship, that next situation, because you're just convinced that where I'm at right now is my problem. And John says, no, your problem is that you still have hate in your heart. It's why some of you always have attention in certain relationships or with a certain or specific person or group of people. Because see, this is what having a soft grudge, this is what having an embittered spirit or having unresolved issues with other people does to us. And it doesn't just affect you and that person, it affects you and everyone else, but more importantly, it affects you and God. 
See, this is what unresolved anger does in your heart. This is what hanging on to unhealthy emotions does to us. This is what justifying mistreating people in our life in any way does to us. It causes you not to know where you are going spiritually because your embittered, angry spirit, it has blinded you spiritually. And that's pretty serious with what John is saying. And all of us need to stop and go, okay, search me, oh God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there is an embittered attitude, a grudge, or unforgiveness in me. But that's not all John is trying to say here. John also says that the person that you don't love well that person that you are still embittered to, that you're keeping this list of all the things that they've done to you, you might have in your head, you might have in your journal, you might have it somewhere. Jesus says, hey, I wanna tell you something. Remember verse one and two? He goes, I am their advocate. I am their advocate with the Father as well. I am their champion as well as your champion. So I want you to come to me with any issues you're having with them and help, let me help you know how to resolve your issues that you're having with that person. Because here's the truth. And I'm gonna say this twice because you might wanna write this down. Because I think so many of us, we tend to forget this. Jesus is powerful enough to help you find healing or the healing that your soul needs for any hurt or any wrong that's ever been done to you. Let me say that one more time. Jesus is powerful enough to help you find the healing that your soul needs for any hurt or any wrong that's ever been done to you. But it feels like the church has forgotten that. We've lost that truth that Jesus is powerful enough to heal any hurt that happens in our life. And so John is reminding us, the one that we look to for the forgiveness of our sin, he sent his son to die for their sin as well. So that person that you're embittered toward, that you have that grudge toward, that you mistreat, maybe just a little bit, that you're passive aggressive about, that person that you like the least in your neighborhood, in your school, in, in, in your office, their advocate with the Father is your advocate with the Father, Jesus. Listen, everybody is somebody that Jesus died for. So John says, hey, you can't hate your brother or sister. You can't have an unresolved issue with anyone and say that you're in the light. He says, quit kidding yourself about this. And so what John is reminding us, hey, Jesus came to establish this new movement called the church. And he gave this church this new command and he said, this is the command that you're to follow. And this new command, don't miss what I'm gonna say here. This new command to love one another as Jesus loved us, empowered by the grace that Jesus poured in our life. Please understand, this new command to love, it can only happen is if you are empowered by the grace of God in our lives. Because you can't live the grace of being for until you are living in God's grace. Otherwise, John says, hey, here's what happens. You say that you're for for other people, but you're still living in the darkness because you don't have unresolved issues in your life. And so he's saying, you can't say you're for others until your life is empowered by the grace of God. You're for, your attitude of being for others is empowered by grace because you can't give grace until you're living in it. So based on this new command, 
There's now this new picture of what it means to love. And that picture is the person of Jesus Christ. But there's also a new definition for the word sin. Sin becomes very easy to define when you look at it from what John says in 1 John chapter 2. In fact, you, you could write this down. If it's not loving them, it's a sin. So sin, according to John, is not loving others well. Sin is not loving well the people that Jesus died on the cross for. And who did Jesus die on the cross for? Everyone. Every person you lock eyes with, Jesus died for, including you. So you also need to love yourselves well. But based upon this new commandment to love, any attitude, any action, any reaction or emotion that I engage in that does not love others well, that does not show them grace, is sin. Boy, that changes our whole prayer life about confessing our sin at the end of the day, doesn't it? I mean, listen. This new command to love one another as Jesus loved us, it is much less complicated to understand than the 16, 614 Old Testament laws. But it is far more demanding. It is so demanding that it can only happen with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit indwelling our lives. And here's why I say that. Because it demands I deny myself, I die to my expectation of getting other people to fulfill my wants, my needs, my desires the way that I feel that they should. So this truth... What it does is ultimately takes us to this revealing question that we've come back to many times as a church, and, and it's one that when we ask it, we almost always know the answer. And it's that question I've given you before. What does love require of me in this situation? But today, I want you to think about it at a whole nother level and ask it this way. What does Christ-like love require of me in this moment? See, this is why John said, We've seen how Jesus loved. So if you get confused about what Christ-like love requires of you, just look at Jesus. In fact, what you discover whenever you read the New Testament, all those imperatives, all those instructions in the New Testament, all of those things are simply applications to the answer of this question, what does Christ-like love require of me? Like you wanna know how to love your spouse? You wanna know how to love your children? What does Christ-like love require of me in this moment? You want to know how to show respect for that person they have difficulty respecting in your workplace, in your school, or in your neighborhood? Just ask this question. What does Christ-like love require of me in this moment? You want to know how to do good for others, especially those others that ah, you don't get along well with? Like, what does Christ-like love require of me in this moment? See, you don't even have to have a chapter and verse for it. It's so clear when you ask this question, what does Christ-like love require of me in this moment? And this is what the Apostle John says, doing good looks like when we're motivated through love, a love that is empowered by grace. So John is telling us, a church that is for is the kind of community that loves and lives and relates to each other with this kind of grace-empowered love. And not only that, they live and relate to those who are not part of the church this way. So here's my question for you as a church this morning, and that is this. Will you commit 
to being the kind of church that loves like Jesus. Because John says, you can't call yourself a follower if you don't make that commitment. Now, here's what I know. We're not going to get it right all the time, but will you commit to pursuing day after day? I mean, even when you get it wrong, don't beat yourself up. Just know that God gives you grace and God will empower you with more grace tomorrow. Will you commit to doing everything you can to make peace with the people that you are in conflict with? Will you show up and will you apologize to someone for your part, regardless of how big or small your part was? Will you extend forgiveness to the people that have hurt you in the past and you still have this list of grudges and offenses that they've had against you? Will you go through your journal or your list or in your mind, whatever, and just write all them down and say, I forgive all of that. Will you stop getting angry when you don't get your way and instead use that opportunity when you don't get your way to put someone else before you? Will you pray for the people that God has placed in your path? Will you pray for them earnestly and fervently? Will you show up in someone's life whenever they're hurting and let them know that you care about them? For some of you, will you celebrate the people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school when they're succeeding? And, and for others of you, will you stop saying, I'm just too busy to show up and serve? Like, will you love your enemies and do something loving for them this week? For some of you, the way you show love, you just, God's been saying this to you for a while. You, you just need to practice hospitality. You just need to invite somebody over for dinner and get to know each other better. I mean, we as a church, we've lost that mindset of community and hospitality. Like, will you be generous toward people who, who you know have a need? Like, will you sp speak up to somebody in your small group in a loving, in a way that just warns them, hey, I think you're headed down a wrong path. So here's my question to you as a church. Will you group, be a group of people who commit to loving others sincerely, sacrificially, and unconditionally, just like Jesus loved you? And you know what will happen if you make this commitment? God will empower you through his grace, his mercy, and his kindness. And you will grow in your faith. You'll be closer to God. You'll become more like Jesus. You'll find joy in your life. And by that kind of love, all people will know that you are for everyone because the way that we love one another. See, this is what a church that is for others looks like. And I'm telling you folks, it can change a church and it can change a community and it can change a culture. And you go, how do you know that? Because it happened before, it happened in the first century and it can happen again. I mean, when the first century followers of Jesus, they committed themselves to loving as Jesus loved them. It wasn't about them getting their needs met. It wasn't selfish at all in any kind of way. When they committed themselves to being loving and living in this way, relating to each other, it ultimately changed the world. I mean, think about it. 2,000 years later, we are here this morning. We're talking about it. And when we commit to this, God will do the same thing in and through us. We will gain influence with outsiders. We'll have better community with each other. And our church and our communities will be changed. And in the process, we'll become more like Jesus. So the question is, why should we do good? Because love compels me to action. John says, when you are in fellowship with Jesus and his grace is flowing through you and empowering you, he says, 
It's like we must live. I have to. His love is compelling me to do that. So let's commit to going out this week and let's do good because that's what love does. And when we do good, people will know that we are followers of Jesus and people will know that we are for them. So today, as we close our service, let me just kind of give you several ways to get up close and personal to people and show love to them by being for them. So when you came in today, on your seat, there was a card. And on one side of the card, it says acts of service. So for your acts of service, I just want you to pick an organization in your community that you can partner with. And then what you do is you contact that organization and you set up a time that you can show love by serving in that organization. Then on the other side of the card, it says acts of love. And so for acts of love, we just want you to pick one or two acts of love, ways that you can... um, that you can show love to people, come up with your own way. You're very creative, come up with your own way. And then go and show love this week and the next week, throughout the rest of this year, just show love and service to people. And here's what I wanna say about acts of love. And acts of love, they are a great opportunity for you as a family to come together and serve together. Parents, children, there's more caught than taught. So pick something from each side and imagine the good that our church can do this week and in the coming weeks in the name of Jesus. Because after all, God is love. And what does love do when we are empowered by God's grace because he's indwelling us? It compels us into action. And let me just say, as one more reminder, when you leave today, our guest service team, they're gonna give you a four cling or they'll be available to give it as you leave the auditorium today that you put on your car or some other place. But all those things are just great ways to visibly represent to, to you and to other people as you go out in the community, hey, we are here to serve and to love. So what I'm going to do today to close this out is I'm going to pray for us and then the band is going to come out on all of our campuses and they're going to lead us in one more song. And the reason we have them singing this song because I believe it will help to challenge you to go out ready to serve and love because this song, what it does, it captures one of the primary reasons that we are challenging you to be for others because if you walk on any of our campuses, you see reach, equip, and send. And our heart, is that all people know that God is for them, even if they're far away from him, that his love is there to welcome them, just like a parent would welcome a child that would come home. That's the kind of love that God has for all of us. And so that's why love should compel us because we've experienced his love and therefore it should flow out to others. So let me pray for us. And I want you to lean in as our bands lead us in this next song. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your incredible love But I thank you that you don't leave us powerless to do that. Because God, to try to be for people without you indwelling us, as John said, we can put on exterior behavior, but we can still be walking in darkness. So I just pray that you help us all Just lean into your Holy Spirit's power. And I thank you for your grace that gives us the power to change. I thank you for your grace that empowers us to love as you've loved us. God, I pray that you'll help us to be so filled with your Holy Spirit as we lean into your person and your presence in our life this week that we will feel compelled to love. God, I thank you for the change you're going to bring about in our lives. 
But I thank you for the change you're gonna bring about in our church, in our community, in our world. So God, we ask now for your supernatural empowering through the person of your Holy Spirit that lives in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.